You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 2. Grab your copies of God's Word. Psalm chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat back in front of you, uh, and you just kind of open up halfway, and you'll see the Psalms, and just navigate to Psalm 2. We're going to spend some time there uh, today as we think about uh, what the Lord has for us each in 2024. Uh, will you pray with me as we invite the Lord uh, to work? God, you are beautiful. That word gives voice to what the psalmist says about you. Your loving kindness, your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your justice. You are rich in beauty in ways we cannot comprehend. And so we do yearn for that day when you do return and we see you face to face. And our hearts leap for joy and our hearts are compelled to a new and deep love. One that is heretofore unseen and unexperienced. So God, gird us while we are here on earth. Make us long for heaven, long for your presence, long for your face. And Lord, as we look at your word today, uh, would you change us? Would it not just be uh, ethereal, uh, an ethereal 35 or 40 minutes where uh, we don't interact with your word. God, would you change us? We give you permission today to do what's necessary, to surface sin, to surface things we're holding on to, to grab more of our hearts. God, would you make us willing and submissive? Uh, God, for your glory and our joy. We pray these things. Amen. One of the, one of the interesting graphic representations of Christian growth, what the Christian life is in the New Testament yeah, it comes from Romans 12, and Paul, uh, Paul begins Romans 12 and says, Therefore I urge you, uh, my brothers, my brethren, uh, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. If we move too fast over that metaphor, if we move too fast over that image, we miss what the Christian life is meant to be like. What is a living sacrifice? Well, I mean, to understand that metaphor a little bit more, we go back to the Old Testament. We have a sense of what they did uh, to bulls and pigeons and sheep and ram and all this. What they would do is they would slit their throat. So the dead animal would not squirm off the altar. Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. That we don't get the pleasure of being dead on the altar. We live as imperfect people becoming holy. And so as God turns up the heat in various parts of our lives to burn away that which we won't give to him, to uh, change and transform us, it's necessarily painful. Living sacrifices. Paul, earlier in, in the book of Romans, uh, describes his body as, as members enslaved to sin. And, and the idea here is that uh, it, what Paul's getting at is that there is, this, uh, there is this idea of the Christian faith 
uh, that undergirds all of faithfulness, Christian faithfulness, and it's submission. And submission is just putting yourself under the authority of somebody else. And so in the Christian life, when we come to Christ, we look at ourselves and say, like, we are bankrupt. We have no hope without Jesus. We have sinned against you, God. We need help. We need forgiveness. But also, not just forgiveness, we need you in every part of our lives. And so the rest of our life is the process of submitting to Jesus more and more each year, more and more each month, day, and minute. This is why Paul calls it a living sacrifice. None of us are fond of submitting our wills to anyone. Amen? Don't say it. We just aren't. And so as we enter... 2024. We, we talked last week about closing out 2023 uh, and the three things to think about as we, uh, we kind of move away from what 2023 was. I want to just offer from Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 some Christian thoughts or some thoughts on submission and rebellion that come from Psalm 2. So I want to do, I want to walk through Psalm 2 and it's got four different stanzas and four different, uh, four different movements, but they all end and aim at verse 12. And so today we're not going to spend a bunch of time in each verse. I want to give you the overarching movement of the Psalm. We're going to leave a lot of meat on the bone, but then I want to get to three areas of Christian submission because the application of the sermon is submit more to Jesus. To all you say, great, I can do that. Well, let's talk about specific areas then. Let's kind of drill down on some areas maybe uh, that go unnoticed in our own lives, unaddressed for whatever reason, and try to allow the Lord freedom to dig up and unearth areas of our lives that are not yet submitted to him. So that at the end of 2024, we are more submitted, more holy, more joyful, more full of the Spirit. So we'll look at Psalm 2. And then I'll give you three areas, uh, three specific areas of submission to consider uh, in 2024. A four-part outline of Psalm 2. Uh, the first three verses are human rebellion. And we'll, we'll look at that. Then God's response to human rebellion. Then Jesus' response to, to God's response. And then a warning. It ends, <clears throat> pardon me, it ends climactically with a warning and an opportunity. So human rebellion, follow along in your copies of God's word or on the screens behind me, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist starts off, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so the psalm almost starts off with a narration. It's almost like a third person looks and looks down at the earth and says, why? Why is it that when we look down there, every nation, every king, every ruler is in furious cooperation together against the Lord and his anointed? What is it and why is it that they do this in vain? It is a picture of uh, the United Nations. Well, I didn't mean it like that, but... uh, (laughs) Imagine, imagine a scenario where you look down and there's a leader from every nation, every king, everything, and none of them, for the first time in history, they agree on everything. There are no arguments about territories or no arguments about despotic rulers. All it's aimed at is everyone bloviating and having massive speeches about how bad the Lord is and how bad his anointed is. That for the first time in history, every leader, every king of every nation is united against 
the Lord and his anointed. That is God and his anointed Jesus. And, and the psalmist says, this is what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is uh, my dad. Uh, uh, maybe illustrate it this way. My dad, he's a hard guy to buy gifts for because, like, he's random. So one year, he's like, I want combat boots. I'm like, Dad, you're a preacher. <laughs> but okay, whatever. The next year, he's like, you know, since I was a child, I really wanted a King George uh, marionette. I think it's what it's called. It's a puppet. I'm sure you Pinocchio before he became a boy. That thing. And I was like, that's weird, but okay. <laughs> the image here is that the kings and the people of the earth, the, the rulers, feel like the Lord has strings on them and is making them dance. And they say, you know what? We would be better without them. Our wisdom is greater. Our will is stronger. We're smarter. We have more military. All of this. We would be better off if we were not controlled, if we had no connection to the Lord of heaven. It is a violent phrasing. The Hebrew, the bursting of bonds is shattering. It's, it is a, the, the, the phraseology is, is very violent. It is, not, it is not someone cutting scissors. It is a dynamite against chains. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because not everyone spoke Hebrew, so they translated it into Greek. And so, interesting, the Greek Septuagint, when it says the, the break the bonds... It's the same phrasing Jesus uses, is, Jesus uses in uh, Matthew 11, where it says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They use that same phrase, yoke. Let us burst the yoke off of us. And there is this connection uh, that we are to get that, that what the world is saying is really, I'm better off without God. I know enough. My wisdom is strong enough. If you just leave me alone, we will thrive. This is a picture of willful rebellion. This is a picture of human rebellion that is fueled by human hubris. That as they plot in vain, the psalmist says, and then they believe they've got it all together. They've got their strategies. They've got the plans. They've got the ballistic missiles. They've got everything. And say, if we just unite. But their wisdom is small and short-sighted, and their knowledge is minuscule. Human rebellion starts in the heart and is then inherently distrustful of God, his people, and his commands. What is God's response to this human rebellion? Verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If we're just honest, this is not what we expected God to do. Laughter wasn't the first thought, right? It's unusual. He watches the nation's plan against him. He watches the king's plan to overthrow him. He watches the rulers plan a coup d'etat. He watches them confidently plan their attack. He watches as they foolhardily coordinate their military might. He watches the leaders as they celebrate their imminent victory. They're already, they're already printing newspapers with the title, God Dead. Maybe laughter is the right response. It, if we put it in different terms, it's like uh, if you were an NFL player, a starter, and you had a little brother who was five, and this little brother said, I'm going to take you down, and grabbed his crayon and drew a plan, and Spider-Man was on his plan, and then he jumped off all of your furniture and said, this is how I'm going to do it, and then came and then punched your knee, 
If you're that big NFL guy, you're laughing because this is the most, this is the most fanciful idea. And so God laughs out of derision, out of contempt. Look how small you are. Look at your plans. Oh, little you know. And I love, I love his response here. It's, it's, it's cosmically comical to God that human rebellion is divine comedy. That all that, God, all that they can muster brings a chuckle of derision in heaven. And he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Uh, the, first, the first verse uh, says that the nations set themselves and then God answers uh, with, against their rebellion with setting who? My beloved, my anointed one on Zion. The answer is not intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's not deposing everybody. It is putting the king that has been prophesied in place. It's putting Jesus on the throne. God's response to their rebellion is to send a greater, bigger, better, stronger king to sit on the throne. This is the Messiah. This is what the uh, Hebrew, the anointed means, the Messiah. For this, for us, this is a Jesus sits on the throne now, and yet not everything is fulfilled in his rule. And so we live how Jesus is the now king and the yet king to come with all of the fulfillment yet to come. And so God says, listen, human rebellion won't stand a chance when I set my king on Zion's hill. His rule will be fair, just, kind, and gracious. No rebellion will go unmet. Would you like to rebel against the Lord? The king, Jesus, sits in Jerusalem. That's all you need to know. He will be fair. He will be just. He will be gracious. He'll be merciful. But he will bring the wrath of God for those who reject him. All human rebellion will be met by the might of of God. Jesus' response to God the Father. So all of a sudden it goes from God looking down and, and, and terrifying them in the fury and saying, I'm not going to destroy you, but I'm going to put my king who will. Jesus then says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vetter. That's what Jesus sings. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me about my rule and about all of what it's going to look like. And he says, well, God said to me, if you just ask, all of this will be your inheritance. All of it will be your possession, and all of this rebellion you will smash with an iron scepter and dash them like pieces of a potter's vessel. Apparently, this was a, a relatively normal ancient Near East metaphor where kings would get a piece of pottery, write the name of a king they didn't like, and symbolically smash it as a way to prophetically say, I'm going to... I'm going to attack them, or may they be cursed. And so he says, and, and so they borrow that metaphor. The, the Holy Spirit borrows the metaphor and says, he's going to, with his scepter, dash rebellion. The king will be given the earth and all in it, and the king will break the rebellion of the rulers and the king. Without delving too much into it here, part of this is yet to come. That this vision of Jesus uh, destroying all of this, this is Revelation 19, one of the more exciting chapters in all of Scripture, where Jesus comes down, flaming sword out of his mouth, and all of, all of the armies of the world are, are mustered, and Jesus, with a shout, slaughters them all and enters into the great supper of God. If anyone invites you to the great supper of God, do not go. That's a supper for the vultures. That's so great, 
And so total will the annihilation be that Revelation says the blood was up to the necks of the horses. Human rebellion then is conquered by God's son. Human rebellion doesn't win, Jesus does. Human rebellion has an end date and it's coming. Human rebellion will be met and destroyed. Those who continue to reject Jesus, those who continue to reject God, God, eventually meet the scepter of his wrath. And in their arrogance, they'll be wiped out. Fourth stanza, a warning, warning. Now, therefore, O kings. So it goes back to the narrator. The narrator looks and says, here's all of this rebellion. Then God answers. Then Jesus answers. And the narrator picks back up and says, okay, you've already written the end of it, but kings, beware. Now, O kings, O rulers, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, or pay homage to the son, depending on your translation, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a warning and an admonition here. The narrative says, listen, kings, rulers, people, do not get it twisted. Your rebellion will be met with the fury and the wrath of God. That he will not endure it, He will not allow it forever. If you don't kiss the son, if you don't pay homage, if you don't come and offer your life to the king, you will perish. If you keep going in the way that you are going, you will perish in that way. If you persist in your rebellion, you will be destroyed. You cannot win, you will not win. This is the warning to all the kings, all the people, all the rulers who desire to live their life outside of the worship of the son. Then there's an admonition. He says, but hold on. Hold, if you do these things, the, the story's not done yet. If you serve him, if you rejoice with gladness, if you kiss the ring. I mean, really, the picture is everyone filing out of that big United Nations building on their knees, coming and giving, taking off their robes, taking off their finery, all whatever rings, and kneeling before the king of kings and the king of the universe, offering their whole kingdoms, their whole life. That's what it is. It is this picture of complete subservience and submission, that the only way forward, the only way to, 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 to avoid the wrath of God is to submit yourself to the Son. It is submit yourself to the Son. It is a tremendous grace. The rulers don't deserve it. They did not earn it. This whole psalm points at this one idea, this one idea. The only refuge from God is in God's son. The whole whole point of Psalm 2 is to point us to, uh, to our own lives, to the detriment of our own will, to the detriment of our own rebellion, and to realize that outside of Jesus Christ, we have no hope of escaping the wrath of God, that he is the king now and the king forevermore, and there's nothing that's gonna change that, and all of my rebellion, all of my brokenness, all my sin can't change that. Not one iota. The only refuge from God is in God's son. All the kings and rulers need to do is to submit their kingdoms and their rule to the king of kings. Submission to the king brought protection, refuge, and blessing. Submission to the king of kings brings protection and blessing. It's the same for us today. I think it'd be easy to go, well, I'm not a ruler of anything, and I'm not a king of anything. 
or a queen, whatever, that this is for someone else. But we have the same problem of heart. We have the same proclivities to believe we are wiser and better. We have the same fractured trust in our creator. We all have a kingdom over which we exercise authority over. Or we all have a kingdom we wish we could exercise more authority over. We all have something in our lives uh, that we hold and we stand or sit uh, sovereign and control over. And so this for us is a reminder that God is not indifferent towards our rebellion. God is not indifferent towards our sin. God is not indifferent towards our attitudes. He hates our rebellion. He punishes for it, and we hurt ourselves. And so we all come into 2024 in need of more submission to God. So three, uh, three areas, three specific areas of submission to Christ to consider in 2024. Number one, submit your doctrine to him. Submit your doctrine to him. Dean and Sarah, a pastor in Florida, said this, when we believers use erasers where the Bible uses permanent ink, we get blurred lines, blurred theology, and errant application. All of us come to Scripture with our own lenses. All of us come uh, with our own experiences, our own hopes, our own dreams, all of that, and we, we read Scripture through our own lenses whether how we grew up, our relationship to authority, or when we were saved, or how we were saved, or what we believe about life. And, and, and we believe certain things almost inextricably, and it's how we live. In other words, what we believe about life, what we believe about God, actually works itself out in our life. That we could say we believe one thing in church, but our life would betray a whole different set of values. Despite our best efforts, often reading the Bible, we miss what God is saying. Which is why we do men and women of the word, by the way, because we think there could be nothing better for the Christian to know how to read the word of God and apply it and to, and to, and to, and to dive into that. Ultimately, what we believe is the, is the biggest barometer for how we're gonna live our lives. This is why doctrine is so crucial. This is why what God says is so crucial. That, that, that if we want to thrive, if we want to submit more to God in 2024, it means submitting our worldview, how we see the world, to God. That if God says one thing, that has to change how we live. That if God says, don't do this, or believe this, or walk this way, then our lives must begin to reflect that if we are going to be faithful. If we want clear thinking, clear theology, and the joy of obedience, we must submit our hearts and minds to the pursuit of his truth. You cannot do this without studying God's word. In other words, living holy lives doesn't happen accidentally. You don't just like somehow uh, drift into it. You don't stumble upon holy living. It is an intentional pursuit of the doctrine of God, the theology of God, which begins to frame who we are. Like, we live, you know this is an election year? Do you guys know that yet? <laughs> if you think your faith is going to be challenged to believe things and to affirm things that are evil and good, like, welcome to, this is going to be insane. Your, your faith is going to be challenged to either affirm evil to get your person elected or decry something that is like, like the tension that you and I are going to live in for the next year is going to be tight. 
There's increasing pressure to bow down to cultural weights and expectations. Put your pronoun in this email. Do this. Allow your kids to be taught this errant way of biology or get drawn into hatred. Uh, the biggest problem is your neighbor who's a Democrat or Republican, and they're the worst. Like, like we are just going to be drawn into, by virtue of the year, dangerous waters for Christians where it's possible you will be affirming evil that God decries as evil. Many times, Scripture says, woe to the one who calls evil good. Woe to us. Woe to us who would do that. So look, if you want to submit your doctrine to him, you gotta trust his word. You gotta trust his word. You gotta trust him. You have to be courageous. You have to live holy lives. There will not be a perfect way to live this year. I can guarantee that. That's okay. But there's a way to pursue the Lord. There's a way to pursue truth. There's a way to pursue conviction and boldness that puts us more in line with his word. Second thing to submit this year is to consider submitting your comfort to him. Submitting your comfort to him. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Deny himself. The one who wants to follow Jesus must say, I'm not on the throne. Must pick up his cross and say, I want to be like Jesus. Must follow, must follow me, he says. Wherever I go, the person who follows me must go as well. It is an all-encompassing discipleship. American Christianity or comfortable Christianity has taught us to say, deny himself most of the time, unless it's inconvenient. Take up his cross. I want to be like Jesus. But could I get one of those comfortable crosses? Follow me wherever he goes. Unless he starts walking on water again, that's a bridge too far, right? We will keep doing things to find comfort in money, in relationship, in things, and try to find comfortable obedience. This call to Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, this, isn't, this doesn't mean you ignore what you need. This means that your discipleship should look like Jesus is on the throne of your life. It means that, that the way that you use your time, your money, your, uh, your, uh, your families, all that, should be governed by the best thing as Jesus decides. Six questions. Six questions for us to consider in 2024 related to comfort. Do I avoid hard but necessary conversations because they'd be uncomfortable for me or someone else? That is to say, like, is there conflict in my life that, that would bring me peace if we kind of dove into it, but the cost, the potential uh, wreckage is too much? Are there hard conversations that I avoid for someone else because, man, I don't really want to talk about that, or, or that, would be, uh, that would be really problematic? Number two, do I avoid others because they're hard to be around? And one of my favorite things about being in a church is all of us would agree, like, man, we want as many people to come to Christ. Uh, we want so many people to come to Christ through these doors. We just hope they look like us and have the same problems like us. That's implicit. No one says that out loud. But a gospel that doesn't make, make room for weird people. None of us would be here, by the way. Or hard to love people or people who aren't quote unquote safe or whatever you want to say. Do I avoid others because they're hard to be around, hard to talk to, needy, whatever it is? Number three, do I avoid serving others because it would mean my desires aren't met? 
It is about, am I avoiding pouring out because it would, it would cost me me time or, or no one would thank me for what I'm doing or, 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 or. The serving others, giving of myself would cost me what I really want. Number four, do I feel at peace only if my bank account displays certain numbers? Do I trust the Lord when he's provided and not when I'm in need? Do I kill myself and work hours and hours to pad the bank account to get to that magical number? Number five, is my mind consumed with creature comforts I must have? Have you guys been around recently with Christmas? This question is like, you get to Christmas and all the deals, there's Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and then there's like cyber every day (laughs) until Christmas, right? Just parading you with all the ads of the things that you need and must have? Am I always on the hunt for the next new car, the next new truck, the next vehicle, the next toy, the next rifle scope? Yes. Do I look around my life and say, man, I wish I could upgrade this, and I continue to look around my house or, uh, or my family or, or my car or whatever it is and say, man, I really need to get a better version of whatever that is? Do I put off obedience? Question six, do I put off obedience until it costs me less? Do I know what I should be doing, realizing it will cost me something I'm not willing to pay, and hope God will forget or at least lessen the cost over time? We must kill our love of comfort so that we can learn to live in the discomfort of obedience because this is where all the fruits of the Spirit are found. Of discomfort and pain, Charles Spurgeon said this. This is good. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. That if you are uncomfortable following the Lord, remember that if there was a better situation for you to be in than the one that you are in, the Lord would have put you there because he loves you and he wants the best for you and he wants you to grow. So let us not be afraid of discomfort and pain as we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. We trust his word. We trust him. Become courageous and live holy lives. Number three, submit your spiritual growth to him. Submit your spiritual growth to him. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. There is this misnomer in particular with like New Year's resolutions and everyone, like if you haven't started reading the Bible right now, I don't know how you're saved. Um, That is a joke. That is a joke. Let's not record that. Uh, but I just like, I think there's this, there's, this, there's this mentality that if we put in this, we're guaranteed that, right? If I just input this each time, what I'll get is growth. Here's the thing. You don't cause your growth. You can't do it. You can't make your heart want to repent. You can't make your heart desire something it doesn't want. Only God can do that. Now, I'm not saying you don't have a piece of it. All discernible spiritual growth is two things, human faithfulness and divine intervention. So let me just tease this out, okay? Like, when, uh, when we begin to sin less, when we begin to desire sin less, so we, we all have these things that are part of us, these proclivities of sin that we've had all our lives, when all of a sudden we've been reading our Bible and we've been doing things and, and it's been a while and all of a sudden we realize, man, I desire that sin less than I did. That's not you. That's divine intervention changing your heart. That's what that is. When we fight sin and God removes the desire in our heart, that's divine intervention. When we begin to experience more joy in Bible reading, even in the Chronicles, 
That's divine intervention. When we begin to be passionately concerned about the lost in our lives, that's a discernible act of the work of God in our lives. Our job is faithfulness. His job is outcome. Our job is input. God's job is output. Here's the problem. is like, I think so much of like the process of faithfulness is governed by our feelings, right? I read my Bible, but I don't feel like I get anything out of it. I didn't, I didn't feel a tingle. I'm not being facetious. I, I, I think that happens. I didn't feel a movement of the Lord, and so this must not be working. I pray, but I don't feel like God is close to me. I don't feel like this is worth my time. Satan uses our feelings more often than not to discourage faithfulness. And we are far easier to derail than we'd like to think. Four practices to be faithful in this year. Pray. Pray. Live a posture of life that recognizes that every moment we are in need from God. And, and if you don't, like if you're like, I don't know how to pray, let me relieve you of some pressure. Uh, we are not like witches and warlocks where if we just get the right incantation, God does what we want. Like it is a relationship with our creator by which we converse with him and he hears us and draws near to us. And this is not like flippant buddy Jesus over here. We're going into like going into the throne of heaven or Hebrews 4 says we can boldly go before the king of the universe, bring all of our burdens, bring all of our gratitude, bring all of who we are and be heard. Read the word. You pray, you read the word. You can't follow Jesus if you don't know where he's going. Serve the church. Look, I... I I want to say this, I guess. Find a place to serve in the church. Find a place to serve the church. I, if you are not serving the church, the greater church of Jesus Christ, if you're not serving this church, there is a deficit in your discipleship. Your service, your using of your gifts is part of your shaping. And what's worse is if you're not serving, there's a deficit in the church, in our church. There's impact that we don't get to have because people aren't serving. And by the way, you'll, you'll serve. I'm just saying this is something like... Pursue the lost, number four. Have a meal with someone. Invite a neighbor over. Help remodel. Have tea with a neighbor. Be interruptible. Pray for the lost. The lost are just as much down the street as they are in Congo. God has providentially placed you where he wants to use you. Will you be interruptible? Trust his word. Trust him. Be courageous. Live holy lives. Number four. I said three, but I'm giving you a bonus one. Submit your whole selves to him. There was a theologian whose name escapes me and I couldn't find it. And he said, there's no part of the universe over which Jesus does not stand and declare mine. And yet there are parts of our lives that we squirrel away and hide from Jesus. There are parts of our, our lives that we will not give to him. There are obsessions, pursuits, and people. They're too precious. Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but this part is mine. This is my kingdom. This is This is mine. And so while Jesus declares himself sovereign over all creation, we say, not over here. So I want to offer a prayer. We're going to put it up here. I want to offer a prayer for 2024. It's just this. Jesus, I don't know what 2024 holds, but you do. I don't know what your 2023 was like, but 2024 promises sorrow and it promises joy. We don't know what capacity. We don't know in what timing. But the Lord does. He's already there. I submit my life, my hopes, my dreams, and my plans to you. Grow me into the image of your son by any means necessary. 
We're giving God the permission to give and to take from us whatever it takes to make us more like his son. That the sole goal of our life in 2024 is not just to be a better me, but to become more like Christ. And so we give God permission to mess with, to fiddle with, to grab, to extricate, to do whatever in our hearts to do that. I want you to have all of me. I trust you with my whole life. Amen. Listen, Jesus is the king now and the king yet to come, which means whatever comes in 2024, we can find refuge in him. Whatever sin we need to give up, we can find refuge and forgiveness. Whatever happiness we encounter in 2024 will ultimately be because it comes from him. Jesus is the now and coming king. So we trust his word, we trust him, we become courageous, we live holy lives. Because the only refuge from God's wrath is God's son. The only refuge from this world is God's son. So may this year be more where we submit our lives more to Jesus. May this year be the year that we experience that the yoke of Jesus is easy, it is light, and truly so. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Jesus, we don't know what 2024 holds, but you do. We don't know what sorrows await us. We don't know what joys us. We don't know what hopes will go unmet. We don't know what expectations will fall. But we submit our lives. We submit our hopes. We submit our dreams. We submit our plans to you. Grow us into the image of your son by any means, any means necessary. Jesus, we give you permission to mess with our lives until we look more like you. We give you permission to tinker, to pull, to pull apart, to take a scalpel and remove, to be gentle. God, we give you permission to do what is necessary to help us to draw near to you and to love you deeper. Even if that means taking us kicking and screaming. We want you to have all of us. And we trust you with our whole life. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you just heard, you can visit churchinmissoula.com.